0: When your developer advocates look into the community, they should see a reflection and vice versa. These are your community members that just happen to get a paycheck at your company. And that is the best program you can have. Let those people do what your community wants to do, like enable them, empower them, accelerate them.
1: This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. All right, we're live today with Patrick McFadden, who is one of the people most closely associated with the Apache Cassandra project, longtime data stacks and, and Apache Cassandra
0: expert. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, long time, long, long time. <laughs> and, and you know,
1: in fact, I, I, I'm i starting to feel like I'm an old guy in the community. And I remember seeing Patrick <laughs> present at Estrada at years ago, back when we met in person.
0: Oh, that was a long, long time ago. We have back when Strata existed. <laughs> yes, it existed and was cool.
1: So yeah. <laughs> Patrick, as is customary, introduce us to Cassandra. Uh, oh, yeah, although it's you know it's it's one of these projects that I'm sure everybody knows, but what is it exactly?
0: Do they though? Well, it is a very popular project and it has been around for a long time. But Apache Cassandra is a database first and foremost, and it's a it's a database of records, so you would use it to store many things. So it's a general purpose database. It would be classified as like a NoSQL database, so it, it doesn't fit into the same world to say like a MySQL or Oracle. The thing that really makes Cassandra interesting is that it was born and bred around the idea of scale and distributed and the idea of cloud. So, you know, the computers that you use are somewhat disposable and can come and go. So your database should be able to stay online. So it really embodies the everything around scale, always on, the elastic workloads that we put against databases these days. And in the past <laughs> 10 Eleven years that I've been working on the project, it's picked up quite a, a following. I mean, you look at the hyperscalers that are doing really cool things on the internet from back in the day, like the Netflixes, the Facebooks, uh, and Apple. I mean, they're they're all using Cassandra because that's the database that works.
1: Awesome, and and let's let's see if we can recreate some of the history here together. So, <laughs> so Apache Cassandra came out of Facebook, is that
0: right? Yeah, it came out of Facebook and it's actually, it has a little more of an interesting route. So there is one of the engineers, Avinash, was working at Amazon and worked on this original paper called Dynamo, the Dynamo paper. And that should be enough of a legend right there. But Avinash left Amazon, went to go work at Facebook and was working on interesting problems at Facebook. And he teamed up with another guy, Prakash, and their job was to build something similar for the Facebook Messenger and the Facebook inbook, inbox service, which is no longer exist, but they were trying to make this work. And Avinash was like, "Hey, I just wrote this really cool paper." And Prakash is like, "Oh, I love, I love Big Table." And they, it's like, I think it was literally like a, a lunchroom conversation, and Cassandra was born.
1: And and Big Table remind us this is this is Google technology, right? That that kind of evolved out of MapReduce to do a similar thing.
0: It was yeah, another one of those oh my God, we have so much data. How do we deal with it? Yeah. And it was more about sequential workloads and large scale, like search results, which is yep. Google. Yeah. But yeah, those things combined together turned into this Cassandra project at Facebook, and then they eventually open sourced it through the Apache Software Foundation.
1: And just so we, we get to understand where your story comes in, when, when did you first run into Cassandra?
0: I just well, actually when did you and to start dating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Cause my mom thought it was my girlfriend for such a long time. <laughs> like, oh, it's a database mom. I don't want to explain what a database is. <laughs> uh, it's funny. You should say that, Eric. <laughs> um, so there was a, there was a friend of mine. He and I were having lunch and a lot of people will know him. His name is <laughs> Adrian Cockcroft. And he was chief architect at Netflix and they were, trying to move away from the DVD business and go into streaming. And this is like January, 2011. And he and I were both at a conference. We were both speaking on a cloud computing panel and we had lunch and, you know, we're just kind of exchanging war stories. And of course, his is way cooler than mine. And he's like, yeah, we're using this database called Cassandra. And I'm like, oh, and I kind of heard about it because, you know, at the time, NoSQL is exploding. So you you had to keep up. But I, and that was 07 and I went home that night and installed it, and I'm like, "Wow, this is pretty legit." And I guess I didn't stop, so I just kept <laughs> going. <laughs> uh, but that was it. I mean, that was that was really how I, I got started with it.
1: And at that point, DataStax was the thing. Do you recall how DataStax kind of
0: emerged? Well, it was originally it was Riptano, and okay. Is that pre-Eric? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so here we go. Some real history. Yeah, Riptano was the original name of the company, um, and it was a cool name. It had a a, a rhino as a, as a logo, and um, but it was when DataStax was going to get a B round of funding. That's when there was like, okay, A round was great. B round, let's let's think about adultifying the company and thinking about a different name, and uh, move from Austin to the Silicon Valley. And you know that DataStax was um, kind of born out of that process, and it's really the, that was when we first came out with an enterprise version of Cassandra, DataStax Enterprise. So yeah, that all that kind of happened in like 2012. It was boom, thing kind of blew up from there.
1: Yeah, and it was kind of the darling of the valley, and had all the things you'd want to see in in a burgeoning company. I mean, it was it was used by. The who's who, the Facebook, you name it, empowering their biggest applications and and had Patrick on staff.
0: Yeah, yeah that, that was actually the key component. It's like, right. oh, you got that McFadden guy. All right, well, you guys must be legit. <laughs> yeah, let me just give you more money. No, it was I think you're right. It was because during that time, like in 2012, NoSQL was... A fun word, but it was like a little, everyone was a little cautious, especially if you were doing so, you know, more enterprises were like that. Sounds great if you're Facebook or Netflix, you know, and you have a bunch of engineers that are ready to go build it. But you know, enterprises were a little adverse to this because they're like, eh, it seems a little risky. But there was also like 400 flavors of NoSQL out there. <laughs> I mean, there were so many databases, like Tokyo Cabinet and Voldemort. I don't know if you remember those, but those were out there. And yeah, it was you know this explosion of NoSQL. And in that 2012-2013 timeframe is when things were starting to whittle down. You know, the the clear winners were emerging. And you know that was part of Datastack's strategy was to like I said, adultify it you know like okay yep. let's let's turn this into what an enterprise needs. They need support, you know they need certified releases. they need all the things that make it your know, security. and it created a transition point where we have our open source world, which I worked in quite a bit, and then our commercial enterprise world. And
1: mm-hmm. let's take a moment'll we'll, we'll deviate from the history bit to solidify the the value of NoSQL how it works, why people use it. We've talked about scale, and that that seems to be the reason people were first kind of drawn to NoSQL, right? The idea that, like, I can't scale my, my SQL database. I need something. That
0: was it. I mean, because it was, you know, and I was working in infrastructure before I started doing the startup product game. And in that early 2000s, we were trying to make everything scale. And what we were taking is these, you know, 30-year-old databases that were great, when we had hundreds of people using them and trying to make millions of people use them Mm -hmm. and relational databases are amazing for what they do. They're very flexible. and They're very good about how they work with data, but it fits a certain model that we didn't need. And that was this highly coordinated transactional type systems that every transaction in the system is expensive because it wraps all this safety around it. And I, I hesitate to use the word safety because it doesn't mean NoSQL is unsafe, but there's certain guarantees that relational databases offer that are just overhead. You know, it's like, you know, the undercoding on your car. Do you really need that? <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> but what NoSQL databases do is they get to the core of the problem. They solve the problems in different ways. And so, for instance, they eliminate a lot of the coordination tasks that have to happen whenever you write data into a database. They create... Uh, distribution so that you can do things in parallel. And, you know, those are different ways of doing data and they're all valid. But when you're doing millions and millions of requests per second, you you have to use the right tool for the right job. And Mm -hmm. NoSQL started emerging. And there's different flavors of NoSQL in there, too. Like some are more flexible, like schema free that, you know, that's MongoDB that everyone's familiar with. Some are very specific, like key and value, and that's Redis. And then there's like this kind of hybrid, which is Cassandra, which fits in the, between those. But again, the way that they work is the use case. That's what you use it for.
1: Yep. And
0: how about, I
1: always wondered if part of the the kind of trade-off was like, I, you know, you mentioned that you don't need these transactional guarantees, but do you also not need the expressiveness of SQL in some cases? A lot of these apps are just kind of putting data and getting data And the thought of a you know a full analytical, you know, be able to aggregate and group and return sums and averages isn't what you need out of the database.
0: Yeah, not at all. I mean, if you think about the things that you do like with a shopping cart, I'll use the most probably the most important thing that everybody wants to stay online, which is a shopping cart. You don't want to lose that. That's where your money is. But a shopping cart is put the thing in the cart, get the cart out. It's not there's not a lot of calculations going on or Anything that needs like complex queries, it's here's my here's my widget. Put it in the cart, store that, and make sure that when I ask for it, it's there. <laughs> That's the use case, and putting all the other things around it doesn't make sense. You
1: no, know, makes sense. Back to the history. So, NoSQL is taking off. Data Stacks is taking off, and they were early in the world of commercializing open source, and also ran into some of the kind of the first. Situation. I mean, I, what am I trying to say, Patrick? There. Yeah. What today, are you trying
0: to say, Eric? <laughs> today, today
1: we're 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 in kind of another uh, commercializing open source crisis is probably too strong a word, but evolution, like where where open source companies are trying to figure out how to navigate their world with cloud providers. Then, DataSacks ran into situations with the Apache Foundation where they were also trying to kind of sort out how you commercialize open source. mm Hmm. mm Hmm.
0: And in open source, I gave quite a few talks back at OzCon, another, another conference that I'll miss. But I used to give quite a few conference talks around just open source licenses. And so if I was to characterize the struggle, it's this push and pull with the license that you're using and the concept of this free as in beer. You know, so this free as in freedom, free as in beer in open source. And this free as in beer, like you can just use this code any way you want. Go ahead. No, you don't have to pay us. The licensing is probably that's a that's an MBA right there, if you can figure that one out. Because it's probably a doctoral thesis at this point, because there's just so many nuances potentially in how you license your software. And you're right, we're going through yet another phase of open source project that's attached to a commercial company and they're relicensing their open source software to you know something that. Like right now, I think the famous uh, phrase is, everybody but Amazon can use it. <laughs> yes. yes that's, <laughs> that, that's the license, That's right? the license
1: we're all looking for. <laughs> yeah, the, the,
0: Amazon can't use this license. But before then, there was others. I mean, there was GPL was where Linux was created. Uh, that was a license for Linux. And it just had some really strong restrictions. It was a very restrictive license. And the one that surfaced to the top for open source projects was the Apache license. And you didn't have to use Apache Software Foundation, but you could use the Apache License. And Apache License is super open source It's like, do whatever you want. You can fork it. You can run it on your cloud. You can do whatever you want. And the only stipulations inside of it was that if you put code inside of an Apache License project, you lose the rights to your patents. And so that makes a lot of people hesitate for a second yes. they hit commit. <laughs> but yeah it's very permissive license and when you have something that permissive it can cause trouble in finance like wait a minute what
1: <laughs> yeah and then the other part i wanted to ask you about was your role in evangelizing cassandra Today, the, the path to evangelizing an open source project is well trod and there's a lot of that going on and people see a lot of value in that activity. I feel like you were kind of a pioneer in community building.
0: Wow, well, I, I hadn't thought of myself that. There I guess, you, go. I, you know, it's interesting because I was talking to another co-founder who was trying to jumpstart a devrail program and I just offered him this advice. I was in this world of, I was doing it, I was a user. Actually, I was a consultant at DataStax. Stacks. That was what I did. I was a Cassandra consultant. And, but I was just doing it all the time. And I happened to be talking about it a lot as well. I would do meetups. I would do conferences, things like that. So I was doing both jobs.
1: And when you say doing it, you mean just building Cassandra and collaborating with people on using and consuming Cassandra, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I cannot tell public stories, but I'll tell you, some of the biggest installations that are out there, I was involved in building. And that was really a cool time. And yes, I was I was an engineer working on the project, and it was because we were a lot of it was we were just trying to figure it out, you know how do we how do we run a thousand node cluster, petabytes of data, but when you get that experience and you talk about it in public, I could kind of clean it up a little bit so I wouldn't use the, I protect the names, but I could talk about the experience, and that turned into being very valuable for a community, and that's uh, Billy, our CEO at the time, he's like, I want you to just do this, and I said uh what he's like just go out and keep talking about how people can do this and help build this community and you know and it was just a really different thing and i you know i said yeah and we, it was funny because we had this discussion we'll do it i'll do it for six months and then i'll go back to being (laughs) a consultant yeah
1: (laughs) my sabbatical from engineering
0: right exactly Um, and i never went back because it's really just been that it's been that rewarding and i still and i still help people build their things and make things but i do it in in this open way that we can build community. And so like, what's the secret sauce is finding those people doing things. Like you don't want to just go hire someone and say, figure it out. You know, that's like hiring somebody who can do training or documentation. You know, that's a skill. This is a passion. Like I want you to understand how to make this work. That's what it's about. And then you and I are just going to sit there and hash it out and figure it out. And then when it's good, You got something, and I feel better. You know, like that's my OCD's over. Okay, Eric gets it. We're good. Right. (laughs) So, so if you
1: if you were uh, advising, it it sounds like you just recently did an open source founder. Mm -hmm. um, You'd tell them, don't go hire a Patrick like me, who's maybe a career evangelist, but go mine your user base. You help empower people to accomplish something, and you find the people that are just super passionate about your project. But there yeah and help them go do it for others is is the
0: yeah Uh, there's two people uh, there's the two people that i i'd say go after or go to go to one of your conferences or a conference where people are talking about whatever you have yep and go talk to them and say you want to do this the whole full time (laughs) (laughs) i heard a lot of developer advocates by saying just those words wow that was a great presentation Do you want to do this (laughs) full-time? And then, you know, a lot of beers, discussions, but then the second one is actually inside, you know, like product and engineering teams. A lot of times engineers that are helping build the product, sometimes they're looking for a different, something different. And and they're, you know, and sometimes they they show up, like they're writing blogs or things like that. And you're like, wait a minute, you're really, you're good at communicating. Would you like to do this full-time again, have that conversation, but it's the passion that you're trying to capture, someone who's really just loves what this thing is, whatever you have, and it wants to tell people about it. That's what you're trying to put in a bottle.
1: I feel silly. I, I had this question ready, and now it feels silly when you, when you put it that way. But I was going to ask you what these people actually do, as if it was like a formula. And you're going to tell me, no, you just let them loose because they're full of passion and they kind of would know what to do.
0: Yeah, and yes, that's really funny because I I do a lot of DevRel conferences now, and that's one of the questions is like, "What's what's a good developer advocate look like? And what's a good developer relations program look like? It looks a lot like your user base. When you look at your user or when your developer advocates look into the community, they should see a reflection and vice versa. These are your community members that just happen to get a paycheck at your company. And that is the best program you can have let those people do what your community wants to do, like enable them, empower them, accelerate them. And it, this is a virtual cycle that keeps happening. And there's lots of ways to do that. Workshops, you know, blogs, example code. I mean, these, these are all the established things to do, but w- how you do it is the most important thing. And that's the passion.
1: So one, one kind of contrarian question, and then we'll move off the DevRel topic, but if it's Just people in your organization, engineers, or just people in your community today, do you need to convert them into full-time folks? Or can you just tell all your engineers to be good at writing blogs? And if they want to do it, just keep doing more of it, but also be an engineer.
0: I mean, that works too. And I mean, if you're looking for a breadth of content creation, for sure. I I think there's a lot to be said for someone who's spending all day, every day thinking about that. And it's not just a part-time job. And only because it is not something you want to do as a part-time effort. Yeah. If you if you have a product that you want people to be passionate about, then you may make that a part of your portfolio. of passionate people that are ready to do that with others. And if it's a part-time job, then you're getting great blogs, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you you know? What's the outcome that you're looking for? Are you getting that outcome with great blogs?
1: Well, and I'm, I'm also realizing there's value to having a face to the project and like people love Kelsey Hightower. And in some ways he brings, what, what am I trying to say? People get excited about Kubernetes and then they get excited about Kelsey, but also they get excited about Kelsey and he makes them excited about Kubernetes. And there's something about his kind of fame that I think concentrating it in him as opposed to just a bunch of team, a uh, 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 hundred Google engineers that you'll lose track of. There's some value in that
0: there's a personality for sure. And yeah, I mean, you. it's like, that's one of the things that uh, has really been a funky in my, I mean, I'm an engineer, like we don't get out much. Right. But right. And then now, then I'm in an airport and someone recognizes me. Like I was in a train station in, in Melbourne or no in, in Sydney. Sorry. Melbourne doesn't have train. I was at the train station in Sydney and some guy came up to me and says, I saw, I saw all your data modeling talks. <laughs> where am i where do i come where am i at? but i mean that's cool because that what you mentioned like with kelsey kelsey's creating connection yeah and you know when i talk to kelsey i feel like you know he's just another engineer doing cool stuff and but i mean that creates um, a friendly human face on something that is kind of cold you know technology is kind of cold and building connections with people is really the name of the game.
1: Yes. Uh, that's an aspect of community. I feel like I always keep forgetting. We had the creator of Chef, Adam Jacob, and, and he just.
0: Another 10X personality. Yeah. yeah. And when, I, <laughs> when I asked him,
1: like, I, I think I asked him some questions about community. And he was, he was like, you're looking at this all the wrong way. This isn't about like, you're talking like it's a business. Like you're supposed to like apply these processes to a group of people. He's like, these are my best friends for the last 10 years. That's the community. Community, these are my people. I care just as much about announcing their kids as as I do the new PR because it's a group of friends.
0: And you feel and you also feel an obligation to a community of users like that because it's your friends. You know, it's like, um, you know, not showing up at the barbecue without any food. when you said you were going to, you know, you just feel bad because you're like, these are the people that you you want to be good with. So that community creates this, like I said, a virtuous cycle and it also creates a ton of conflict because when the business is making decisions that goes against your own values, ooh, that that can be some drama. And it's something to be aware of, try to avoid, of course, but it happens because it goes beyond just, I'm doing a job. Uh,
1: I keep saying I want to move away from this topic, but I really like it. Uh, we, <laughs> I'm advising a, an open source company who felt like, The chat room was inefficient at answering questions, and so they should move to kind of this ticketing forum system, and they abandoned the chat. And to their credit, the answers are actually much easier to come by. But a group of kind of rogue members were like, I want to talk to the people though. I want to just like hang out with people who are also excited about this project. So they kind of formed a, an unofficial chat room because they're like, it's not about the answers. That's you think that's why I'm here. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to hang out with my buds.
0: We have a saying, actually this is an old saying. It's like water finds a way. This is something that wants to happen and you're either in its way or you, or you're helping it happen. And, yeah, that, that's a really critical part of community. Yeah, I mean, if you start looking at like KPIs around how many people are chatting, oh boy, you're going to be really disappointed. But if you're thinking about an overall engagement, like are we engaging people? Are people there? Are they engaged? Then yay, go team, because that's magic when that starts to happen. And good for that user community for figuring it out.
1: <laughs> so uh, tell us about Cassandra today. I feel like Cassandra needs to be kind of reintroduced to the world. Like there was the Cassandra remember from the early DataStax days, but there's a lot going on right now.
0: Foreshadowing, I, I do have a blog that's supposed to be coming out soon around Cassandra 4.0 and I one of the things that I I think is really interesting about the project, it's it's you know, it's 10-11 years old and I think it's emerging out of its adolescent phase. You know, if you think of a database lifespan as like 30 or 40 years, I think that's realistic. And you know, a 10, 11 year old database, it's, it's coming out of those those years. And it's so funny because when you talk about a new project, you're like, it needs to be mature immediately. Well, there's time in service <laughs> and you just, gosh, it's, I'm sorry, it's not you, it's it's physics. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, Cassandra 4.0 is getting ready to ship and it's been a long time since we've shipped a major version and part of that was this soul searching that happened inside the project about what is a database? And, you know, it it was really cool because it was like, it was like a a really great sitcom where, you know, it was the growing up episode. It's like, oh, the database is growing up because the project community, the PMC, the the management um, committee was really adamant. Here's what's important is stability and correctness of the database. And we're going to do everything we can to make sure that this is the most stable database on the planet. And so... It isn't gonna ship until they're some of these major users are using it in production on dot zero. That's unheard of. So I think that's a really interesting milestone to say, wow, okay, you're right. That did grow up a bit because it's not just throwing code over and good luck and let us know if you find any bugs. PR is accepted. No, we're it's the project has really gone into a different stance about quality of this code we should not ship until it is perfect as we can make it so that's what's going on with cassandra now (laughs) and uh is is part of that
1: maturity is is it a function of the governance so so i I think i think we talk a lot about projects that are are kind of new and interesting and they're all trying to figure out the kind of their governance story and cassandra's had that nailed for a while i mean the, the apache foundation kind of gives that to you out of the box um Sort yeah. of, sort of, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Is it maturing both on the governance side too? Or the I- project, they, so in the Apache model, it's really you know the the Apache Software Foundation has guidelines and bylaws, but then they really put the governance of the project in the Project Management Committee, the PMC. And so when you hear people talk about the PMC. These are the the people that um, they have binding votes. So, and they also have you know, and a binding vote can be a a minus one, which means no. And so, this is what creates that you know that push and pull inside of a project. You have to have consensus, and you have to move forward. But the Apache Cassandra project has gone through a really interesting renaissance with their own governance by posting how we will govern this project inside the C Wiki, which is a it's, it's for the Apache Software Foundation, provides these wikis for each project. But it's posted online for everyone to see. There was a huge debate about it online and and really matured quite a bit in its governance. Instead of just vote on something and maybe it's, no, this is how we propose things. This is how we vote on them. This is what a release means. And it's gotten, I th- this is another maturing point, which is really important. And the early projects just don't get that. But I, I'm very happy with where it is today.
1: And tell us, uh, for those kind of, who maybe are getting excited about the project? How how do, how do folks get involved
0: or where does the community hang out? It's interesting because of, you know, pandemic, where do we hang out? Online. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The last major conference I went to was an Apache conference as a matter of fact. Um, But what we're doing, I mean, we're mostly we're on Slack. There's the Apache software Slack um, and the mailing list, of course. But You know, there's a lot of active user groups out there. Like we see, the meetup groups are still doing their thing, but they're doing it all online now. So, for instance, the London Cassandra group is still really active, still doing meetups all the time, but they're all online. (laughs) And I mean, if you want to get involved, any one of those forums, the mailing list, or this or Slack, of course, anyone can come find me. I'm all over the place, and I'll help you with that. And it's, I think, it's just finding your people that you want to get involved with, and how you want to get involved. There's really two ways. There's you if you want to help build a database, that's the contributor side of like contributing to the actual code base. But a contribution to the Cassandra project can also be things like doing a great presentation. They can help out by do, doing meetups and by blogs and things like that. I mean, that's the kind of things that helps others. And sometimes, you know, if you spend a few hours working on a presentation and and it helps somebody. That is just as an important contribution as if someone added a feature to Cassandra, the database, because you're helping move the project forward. 100%. Patrick, anything we didn't cover today you wanted to discuss? Oh uh, boy, I don't know. We, where are we today? Like, what's going on? I think we were talking about earlier, but. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The data stacks. Like, the data stacks still around? <laughs> Of course we are. We're going strong. I Well, you know, what's interesting is right now we're talking a lot about Kubernetes. And that's yeah. that's like the big deal for, I think, data. So um, I've spoken at the last couple of KubeCons around running data on Kubernetes. And I'm really excited about that community and what that is going to do. Astra, our database as a service, runs completely on Kubernetes. So we believe in this as a, as a thing. Yeah. And we have a, a project called Kate Sandra, which is... Uh, running Kubernetes and Cassandra and together. But this is why I'm excited about the next 10 years because we're building out these cloud-native data infrastructures now that are nowhere near like what we did 10 years ago where we were pounding out with bare metal and hoping for the best. <laughs> and it's a lot of really cool energy in the project now around, wow, we could just make virtual data centers with Kubernetes and deploy them on any cloud we want. And, and I remember I told you before, I think open source is going to start eating clouds. Yes, yes. That's it. Kubernetes is going to do that because it's reducing clouds down to the three things that they really offer, compute, network, and storage.
1: And and now that all the clouds are homogenous, I mean, there, there used to be these proprietary interfaces that
0: yeah. And it's up. called Kubernetes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like how Apple or not Apple, Amazon decided to do their, well, we have our own version of Kubernetes. Fine. <laughs> That's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. So does Google. Everyone has their own version, but it still runs the same Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah. So, so as long as you can all take my same YAML file. <laughs> yeah. If I can do de- kubectl deploy and I'm done, then. Great. <laughs> but yeah, I am, that's, that's a pretty exciting future around data on Kubernetes.
1: What I think is interesting about that future is there was a time eight years ago, five years ago, when everyone said, we're all, you know, we're going 100% in the cloud. That's the future. We all just need to get in the cloud. And then uh, with cloud native, suddenly people were like, wait, I can have all the cloud goodness uh, here at home. Yeah. And, and a couple of folks were like, maybe I don't have to put everything on Amazon. Maybe I can just kind of put Kubernetes here in my data center. And I, th- I think there, there's a segment of of the market has said, has kind of put the brakes uh, slowed down on the cloud migration because they can uh, cloud natify themselves.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we, I think we went down that path a little bit with like OpenStack, you know, we were like, yep. oh, I could build my own. I could build my own Amazon using OpenStack. And I mean, it required a lot of, hardware and a lot of expertise in building out those things and now you know i I see this 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 great equalizer you know open source has always done this great job of uh, resetting markets you know like when we like things like open source what it did with operating systems reset i mean we used to have to pay for operating systems i I don't know if you remember that but that was the thing. And then databases, you know, what if Google had to pay Oracle full, full ride on an Oracle database to build out their infrastructure? Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. It wouldn't work. Larry would have had more than one island. That's right. (laughs) But I mean, I see that happening now as this reset is happening again with cloud economics. Like, you know, cloud is selling all these doodads on top of compute network and storage, like proprietary databases that only work in one cloud. And, you know, they're flavor of the month CICD pipeline and that sort of thing. But it's just to try to get you locked in. But open source is going, yeah, no. <laughs> We've, you know, a company X can say, we know what we need to run and we're smart enough to do it. And Kubernetes makes it work. Yeah. So let's get disruptive at the end. It's <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really great um, kind of analogy
1: timeline that, that open source kind of first took on operating systems and then databases. And now it's the whole kit and caboodle.
0: Yeah. And then what's next? I don't know. AI, right. probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but now we're just speculating. Now we're just writing science fiction. Yeah.
1: Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show. As mentioned at the beginning, uh, you, you've always been kind of the developer relations evangelism person in my eyes. What you've done for the community at large, the kind of computing community is uh, impressive, and particularly for Cassandra. Uh, thanks for sharing the insights today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad I could share. That's what I do.
1: (laughs) You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.